Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. Glad you're here. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. I usually do uh, the most part of the teaching. Uh, glad you could be here with us this morning. Uh, normally what we do in this slide is we have our all-of-life interviews, uh, but today we're not doing that um, because I have a couple announcements, and then I have an introduction to a new ministry of which we are going to be a part of as a congregation, and so it's somewhat of an important announcement. Uh, so the first couple uh, announcements that I have is um, reminders, and that is September 4th which is the first Wednesday of September, we have First Wednesdays. If you're kind of new to redemption and you're like, what is this thing called First Wednesdays? We thought a couple years ago, what if we had conversations around theology and culture? And so let's take a topic in culture and saying, how does it intersect with the gospel? How does it intersect with grace? How do we look at these things? And so we've had art galleries. We've had conversations on politics, homosexuality. And so this upcoming, um, actually it's in two weeks, September 4th, we're going to be talking about sports and looking at a theology of sports and what do sports mean um, and more than just us watching sports and enjoying it. And so Tyler Johnson, who's one of the pastors in all of Redemption, is going to come and lead that. Uh, he's also uh, a former Division one athlete at a really, really important university here called Arizona State <laughs> University, and so he's going to be here, and um, also another panel of people that have played sports at other places, perhaps maybe some people that have also played at ASU, just my guess, and um, one of the guys that's going to be there we've been able to get, which is really cool, is one of the writers for uh, the Arizona Republic, and he's going to be on that panel as well, so if you don't like sports, I, I still would tell you to come in the same way that I would tell you to come the first Wednesday, be with people, and to hear uh, just an opportunity to hear about sports, maybe in a way that you've never heard it. The second thing is primarily for you women. And so last week we brought up Sandy and we are starting Redemption Women. If you weren't here, that's going to be a ministry that is for the women of redemption. It starts the second Wednesday in September. It's going to be our inaugural, our first ever, the Genesis, whatever you want to call it, right? And so she was here saying, if you want to show up wearing, I think last week, I think the rules were whether you want to wear a turtleneck or a basketball jersey. I don't know what it was, but it was basically show up wearing whatever you want to wear, but it's a second Wednesday. There will be a morning slot um, for those of you who can make it in the morning, and there will be an evening for probably the bulk of uh, women who can make it in the evening, all ages. It's going to be a blast. So there's child care provided at both of those um, at both of those times, and so what you need to do is go online, and you can RSVP for child care, or you can just take that information card that's in the seat in front of you and fill out, I need more information about redemption women, and then you can drop it, drop it off in the offering box later, and we can get you some information about that. So First Wednesdays and Redemption Women, those are our two uh, announcements that we have this morning. This next thing is, I need your eyes, I need your ears, because I know how announcements are. You show up, you sing some songs, loving the Lord, and you're like, we want to get to the sermon, and it's like announcements, we don't pay attention. Um, pay attention, I can see all of you. More importantly, God can see you all, all right? <laughs> So here, here's what you probably know already, and, um, and if you didn't, that there is a crisis in the world, and it's an orphan crisis, that there are millions of orphans in our entire world. And what we also know, many of us know, is that in the Bible, God himself speaks about it. And the way he speaks about how we're going to go about caring for these orphans is actually through people like you and people like me, people who love God and who are part of the church. In James 1.27, it says that we are to, we, those in response to the gospel who believe in God, are to seek to care for orphans and widows. And so this is not just a global problem, but we realize even in our own state that this is an issue. I believe there's somewhere around 14,000 kids that are in our foster care system. And so we as a church are looking at that and have been looking at it and saying, what is our part? Um, how do we play a part in that? 
There are many of you in this room who have already answered that call, and whether you come alongside a family who is adopted or you yourself has adopted or taken kids at foster care. So we're not saying the church hasn't done anything. We're just saying, how can we do more? And so there's, there's um, not only the church is saying we want to do more, but we actually even have the, the government itself coming to churches saying, how can you help? And here's the video that they have here, the government speaking to people like us. My name's Clarence Carter. I'm the director of the Arizona Department of Economic Security. And usually, when you hear someone from the government, they will say, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. But today, I would say, I'm from the government, and I'm here asking for your help. Arizona has a crisis. We have a child welfare crisis. We have thousands of children who have the unfortunate circumstance of having to be separated from their birth family. And we need to provide safe, stable, loving homes for those children while we find a a forever home for them or a permanent replacement. Within your congregation, could a family open their home to one of these children? We know that there are enough faith-centered families in Arizona that if each of them simply opened their home to one child, we would have more homes than we would ever need, and no Arizona child would ever have to wait. The need for Arizona's children who find themselves in the child welfare system cannot be resolved simply by government. I would tell you the government makes a very poor parent, but families of faith can make a very great parent. And this is our ask of you today. So with that, um, that call and the issue that we have, there's been three churches that have been catalyst in saying, how do we as a state uh, as Christians, begin to answer this. And those three churches are City of Grace, which is in Mesa, uh, Mission Church, which is in Gilbert, and then Redemption Church at all of our congregations um, throughout the valley, primarily the, the Maricopa County, and, and initiating a project uh, that's called, a movement, excuse me, that's called AZ-127. And so you can go to www.127.org and learn more information about that as a whole, But more locally, what we're doing as a ministry in redemption is that we are starting for the first time our redemption, foster care, and adoption ministry. Um, This is for any person, whether you're married or not, whether you want to adopt kids or whether you don't. We don't believe that God's calling every single person to adopt kids, but we do believe he calls every single person in Christ to be a part of um, the solution um, in his name. And so we're going to have two informative meetings. And so this is not the first time you're going to hear about this. Next week, Jim's going to come back and tell us a little bit more. And then two weeks from now, on September 8th, we're going to have Robert Gelinas, who is easily my favorite pastor, is going to be preaching here. And um, we're going to hear from him. His church in Colorado started a, an organization or a movement called Project 127, not to be confused with AZ-127. We didn't copy them. We're AZ, right? Um, and so he'll be speaking here. And so for the next three weeks, you'll hear more. But the two dates, if you're interested in being a part or hearing more, September 10th, which is going to be at the Gilbert campus, and it's going to be 
Look at that. 6.30 to 8 p.m. at Gilbert, and there's going to be childcare available. Or if it's better for you to go to Arcadia, you can go on September 12th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. at Arcadia. Again, these two dates. If you're saying, I'm kind of interested, show up. If you're saying, I'm not that interested, but I want to be interested, show up. Um, there will be, again, childcare available for that. Um, and also, there's, we don't have a ton of these uh, flyers. We'll get more. But if you are highly considered it and you want to take one of these flyers, stop by the Connect Desk on your way out. Um, and again, we'll give you some more information as the weeks come on how we as a church could be a part of this. And so here's what we're going to do before we jump into God's word. Um, something a little different. We're going to pray together. And we're going to pray together mainly for these kids and mainly for us as God's people to love these kids and serve these kids. And so I'm not going to ask you to pray with your neighbor next to you, but we are going to ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in us and, and to do a work in the lives of these children. So would you guys bow your heads as we pray? God in heaven, we humbly come before you. We come before you, Lord, in, in understanding biblically what adoption teaches us is that we were orphans far from you and that you went out of your way through selfless, sacrificial love that was extremely costly to make us your own. And Father, every family in our congregation and every family in our whole church understands the cost that it, that it, that it involved to love and to take people into your home. And God, we pray, Lord, for your strength and for your love to be able to lead us and guide us as a church around this issue. That, Father, we care for those, those thousands of kids that are in homes, looking for homes, those kids who are sleeping on floors, um, in the offices, Lord, that need families, God, that you would provide families, that you would equip them, you would call them, you would guide them, you would lead them, and we would be able to, as a church and as families, to raise up kids the way that they ought to go in Christ Jesus. So we ask for your anointing, God. And we can't do this apart from you. We can't do anything apart from you. So if we want this to be fruitful, God, we ask for you to be in the midst of it and, God, for you to bless it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to turn to God's word. And so if you guys have a Bible, uh, meet me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Um, seems like we got quite a few people here. There's some seats up here in the front. I promise you I won't spit on you too much, and there's some seats around. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Again, Romans chapter 5 is where we're at. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we're handing out so that you can read and grow and study in the knowledge of God's Word. We've been tracking through this series for, series for some time now. In fact, this is week 21. Um, so far, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he's been climbing up this mountain of justification. He's uh, by faith. He's got, into the top, he's got to the top of the mountain, and now he's on his way down with looking at the implications of the gospel. So looking at the implications of what justification by faith means and promises in our life. And so beginning in chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7, Paul begins to show us this life. And so that you know where we're going for the rest of the semester, we're going to start in chapter 5 today. When we get to the very end of November, the last Sunday in November, we'll end chapter 7. We'll take a break off of Romans for the four weeks of Advent. We'll do an Advent series, and then we'll pick up in Romans 8 again um, in January. But for this morning... We look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
um, what we have here in Paul, in these two short verses, is Paul gives us the three tenses of the gospel. And what I mean by that, there's a past tense, there's a present tense, and there's a future tense. Um, Past tense, the gospel shows us that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, the gospel shows us that we are currently being saved by the presence, excuse me, from the power of sin. We are currently being saved, present tense, and we'll spend some time there. And then lastly, a future tense. The gospel lets us know that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. So saved from the penalty, being saved from the power, and one day saved from the very presence of sin is where Paul takes us in, in this morning. I don't know about many of you guys, I don't know all your stories, but some of you are married, some of you are not married, but you know what marriage is for the most part. Um, and you know that marriage in itself, a wedding and all that stuff, it has a process, it has a starting point, and then there's like this moment in between, and then you have like the wedding. And, and it's something I think about uh, quite a lot, especially this time of the year, because in Arizona, since the summer is, is kind of hot, many people get married in the fall, and I was looking at my calendar for this fall, and I have four to five weddings, not 45, um, four to five weddings that, that I'm doing, and I'm like third string on the list here. Um, Tim Anderson's first string, he starts, he's All-American, and then Ryan Arneson is second string, he's almost there, and me, like, I just come off the bench to relieve every once in a while, right? And so that, that's a lot of weddings, and so people are thinking about weddings. I'm writing, scripting weddings, what I'm going to say. Some of you are here. I'm going to say some really bad things about you um, in, your, in, your, in your wedding. But what I think about when I think about my wedding, the starting point was when you first asked your, your spouse, your future spouse, you're hoping, right, um, to be your spouse, to marry you. And there's that moment where you get engaged and you're excited and you tell everybody, yo, hey, I did it. Right? And so you're excited, you're excited. And then there's this that kind of in-between moment, that that, that moment that you kind of hate. That's called the engagement. And then you're looking forward to the actual wedding, the day that you will get married. And most of us, you know, especially as Christians, we can't wait to that day that we get married. We're like looking forward to like, yes, I can't wait to, you know, do taxes together. You too? <laughs> I know you guys got to get your minds out of there, right? And so there's a sense. And so there's kind of this past, this presence, and this future sense. And so with that kind of analogy, we'll kind of walk through this text. And so the first point that Paul talks about is that the gospel saves us, this past tense. We are saved, already done, from the penalty of sin. Verse 1, Paul says, therefore... And, and, I, and I pause there. Those of you who've been around redemption, you know that I, what I'm going to say here is whenever we see a therefore, we have to stop and pause and ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And what's happening is the, the author is going to connect something that he's previously said with something he's about to say. And so here's Paul now, again, coming down this mountain. Justification by faith is what he's been talking about is that the way that we are made right before God is not by being religious, it's not by being spiritual, it's not by being good, but it's by acknowledging our sin, Christ's payment for sin, trusting in him by faith, and now we are justified. And now he says, now, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there are certain little lines in these two verses that are, that are amazing. Um, that peace with God is something that if you had a pen or a marker, you would underline. This peace with God that we have talks about that God himself has saved us from the penalty of sin. Let me explain this for a second. There is such a thing as the peace of God, and there's peace with God. Um, The peace of God is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. 
That's a subjective piece. What it, what it means is it's something that you can sense, something that you may be able to feel at moments in your life through trials and tribulations that God will give us um, his peace, the peace of God in those moments. We, but we may not always feel that. And then there's the peace with God. This is more eject, objective, meaning you may not feel it. You may not have an emotion. It may not, um, make you, it may not move you, but it's a reality. Meaning no matter how you feel, no matter how you wake up a particular day, that this peace is always going to be there. This peace with God has everything to talk about and everything to do with hostility that has been removed. Meaning there is a war between you and God that is no longer there. There's no longer war between you and God. And some of you are going, war between me and God? Like why would there ever be war between me and God? Um, some of you may be thinking, like, if there is a God, because I'm not even really sure if I believe in God, if there's, if there's war, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's not the type of God that I would believe in, because my understanding of God is that he's a loving God, and he's, he's a gracious God, and, and why would he ever be mad at people? Why? That's the problem with Christians. You have, like, this picture of this angry God that whenever you do bad, this God's going to chase you down, and, and there's war between you and God, and that's just not the case. Some of us think that way. Because some of us believe that if there really is a God, then, well, he would be like the way that I would think he would be. And the thought of me not being right with him would be weird. Some of us think that we're just okay with God. Like me and, if there is a God, we're cool with him, right? Uh, we're cool with him. But the Bible says something different. In fact, when you read through the scripture, the Bible is very clear. Like me and you, we're not just cool with God by nature and by birth. We're not just, we're not just like on his side, Right? I don't know if you ever had those experiences or one of those moments where, where you think you're cool with someone and you find out you're not. Have you ever had that? Like, what's up, man? How you? I don't like you. I'm at war with you. It's like, oh, wow, sorry, you know? <laughs> Read the Bible, right? You walk through the Bible. We're, as kids, we're always taught, like, you know, we're, we're God's children. We're all God's children. doesn't matter. And then you open up Ephesians, and it says that we are all by nature children of, children of wrath. And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound like fun, Right? Well, here, here's what Paul had said in Romans 1 and Romans 2 when talking about this war that preceded our relationship with God. In Romans 1, he says, after the first 17 verses, which is Paul just saying, I love you and I love God, now let me tell you about your situation. He said that every single person in this world, that he says the wrath of God is being revealed, language we don't like hearing. He says the wrath of God is being revealed. And he says, why? Because God's angry? No, it says because we've rejected him. It says that every single person by nature and by choice um, is a sinner that we've said before that we are naturally by birth, that we are naughty by nature. Just a reference to a 90s rap. We've said that already. That was several weeks ago. Some of you just got it after 17 weeks, right? So that, that, that's who we are. And he says the wrath of God is being revealed because we've rejected the truth about God. So in essence, we've seen God. We know who he is. And we go, no, thank you. I will be my own Lord. We don't use that language, but I will be my own God. We wouldn't say it that way, but I'm going to look after number one. And God, what we said is the worst thing that God could do for us in his wrath is allow us to be who we would normally be apart from his divine intervention in our life. And those are people who say there's no God. And then Paul in chapter 2 says, okay, those of you who think you're, you're, you, you got, you're clear because you actually believe in a God, he goes, there is a way that you can say you believe in God and you can do all the things that the scripture tells you to do and still not understand what it means to have a relationship with God. That you still can be trusting in your own morality. 
And what we said as Christians, man, we should be afraid of that. Like, because there are many of us in this room that are checking a box. We're doing the right things, but we're not in love with Jesus. And so he doesn't use the word wrath there. He used judgment. And so when we say, are we cool with God? It's like, listen, God says there's wrath and there's judgment. I don't know anyone you're cool with that talks about your relationship in terms of wrath and judgment. Like, I'd be really upset if you talk to my wife and go, describe your relationship with you and Ricardo. Oh, wrath and judgment. <laughs> it's been six long years of wrath and judgment, right? Like, that's not a really good relationship, right? But when Paul says um, that there's peace with God, he's exhaling. He's saying all of those people in Romans 1, the murderer, those who are malicious, the disobedient, the homosexual, Romans 2, the, the religious bigots, the religious people who think they're self-righteous, all of those people, it says that what Paul says is, now God looks at them who were far off and says, I welcome you in now. And the reason why he does that is because he himself gives himself to us in order to make this peace. And so what you have is God cannot stand our sin. He hates it and has to deal with it. It's treason but then God cannot stand the thought of not being with us for all eternity. And so he sends his son Jesus to the cross to pay for our sins, past, present, and future, and he pays the penalty of sin. And so when we start off by saying that the gospel shows us that God himself, we are saved from the penalty of sin, Paul is saying now there's peace, that there's peace with God. That God looked at us, he set us up and said, this is who you are apart from me, but now this is who you are in me and through the work of my son Jesus. That God begins to just turn our lives upside down. And, and this, this, this happens, usually this moment is called the conversion where you give yourself to Jesus. So whatever language you have there, and many of us in this room, I never assume that everybody's here is Christian, but many of us in this room have had one of those experiences. Um, and the way God saves different people and in, in the circumstances are different. Like some of us, we at five years old listened to a message in children's ministry, came home, went to our mom and said, I want to receive Jesus in my heart. They prayed for you. You received Jesus and you've been walking with the Lord ever since. Amazing testimony. And I pray that my kids have that testimony, right? Like that's a testimony. I know we like to, I did drugs for several years and I beat up a few kids and I murdered and stabbed people. Now I'm saved. Okay, your kids, not my kids, right? I want my kids to have that, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I want that one, right? Both are great. Both are, well, bless his heart. <laughs> Validating my preaching. <laughs> sorry, I do suffer from ADD, guys. I'm sorry. Wait, who are you guys? <laughs> so, like, just that, that, that testimony, right? So you have that. But then you have people who, who literally got dragged, like, kicking and screaming into his kingdom. Um, but no matter which one you have, there's a moment or moments where God just breaks you with this love. Because when you have this peace with God, we, we've said before that the Bible, and the Bible, when we, the English word peace is far too weak of a word um, for what the Bible talks about when it talks about shalom and it talks about peace. That what we have here is we have a collide against God. We didn't just sin against God because we broke his law, which is sin, but we tried to claim authority over our lives. I mean, we tried to be God. We said we were kings of our own life and over this own world. We say what's best. And God's going, that's interesting because I say the same thing. So there will be a wrestling match. Some of us have had this wrestling match with God. Some of you, you're in the middle of it. 
Let me tell you who wins that wrestling match every time. God. And it's the best thing for you. Some of us have wrestled with people literally, right? If you have older brothers and or sometimes older sisters. Uh, I, was, I was the youngest uh, and I had an older sister and I've told you about my sister. My sister can whoop any of you guys right now, right? And then, and, then, and then my brother could too. And so I was just the youngest and I was always getting beat. This is true. I in high school thought, I'm working out, my brother's not working out, I'm going to get him. So we start wrestling. Bam, he's slamming, just, you know, just in my throat, right? I'm like, all right. Last night, probably because I knew I was going to be teaching this, I had this dream that we're playing basketball, we're playing a pickup game. My kids are there, my wife is there, and then all of a sudden, my brother started arguing like we do, and then he swung at me, and I missed, and I swung back, and he grabbed me, slamming to the ground, and started choking me out, like in front of my wife and kids. And he's just like, I'm still your big brother. I'm like, I'm dying, right? It's like... There's some people you just can't beat. And, and if there's a wrestling match going on with you and God, he's going to win, and it's the best thing for you. I, I, I usually don't share this, but um, I think it fits. Is, so the back, the back story, I've told you my testimony, but my back story was that um, my justification wasn't on God. I, I, reputation was huge for me. And when I was in college, I was known as the good guy. Like, I was known as the good guy from the people that coached me, from the people that were around me. But I had, like, these issues, like, over here. And I knew if these issues ever came to the surface, then that'd be, that'd be all bad. Another thing was, like, my athletic career was, was, was everything to me. Like, to me, like, ever since I can remember, like, I'm just going to play football. And football was, like, my ticket. Like, I got, good gra- I got decent grades in high school in order to go to college. And I got decent grade in college to stay eligible. <laughs> like, it was like, there was no, like, oh, I want to bec- get a job. No, I'm going to play football forever, and then I'll probably die, right? It didn't matter. Well, God began to strip those things away. Because what happens is, this reputation that I had, that everyone was like, oh, this guy's a good guy. I got caught because I, I, I smoked I, I did drugs, um, um, marijuana, and um, not for medicinal reasons. <laughs> and one day we got caught. I mean, for three years, never failed the drug test, worked my way around it, the whole deal, got caught. And I just remember that look on my coach's face, and he's like, you do this? Kind of like, this is who you are? And I just kind of lost the self. Short, shortly after that, we were playing a game up in Washington State, and I just did a routine tackle, tackled the guy, and fell back, and then couldn't feel anything in my body for what felt like a day, but about 10 minutes. I thought I was paralyzed. And I lay back, and you've probably seen that scene in the sporting events where, you know, everyone's taking a knee and praying, and they drill the guy's face mask off and put him on the little, like, I was on that. Went to the hospital, and it was just a terrible experience. And I thought, Lord, is this it? Like, these, and just strip that away. And, and, then, and then it came to, well, I, I got healed from that, and I was fine. I wasn't paralyzed, and I came back my senior year, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to live for God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for God. I don't know if you ever had that where you're now, you know, you felt like God's done something for you, so you're going to pay God back, like, oh, Lord, thanks for picking me up next time I got you, right? <laughs> and so, so I'm going to live for Jesus. Like, that's my thing. I'm going to play football for Jesus, you know, do all the sign language and everything else because he cares about that. And, um, and then... And then um, after the season was over, um, and, and this is the part of the story I usually never tell because it usually gets blown out of proportions, like, oh, but it's, just hear me, is um, I thought I was going to get drafted. I thought I was going to play in the NFL, and, and mainly because there were two particular teams that told me that they were going to pick me up. And I don't want to name the teams because they could be your teams, the Bears and the Cowboys. <laughs> so I don't, I don't like them. <laughs> and none of, them, none of them did. And I remember just sitting there at my quote-unquote draft party um, in Lake Havasu, and, and you know what? That was the best thing for me. 
Now, like, looking back, I can look what God was doing in my life because I was just getting stripped, and I was known as this dude who had a weed problem. I mean, I had a, I had a fractured neck, and then I tried to play my heart out, and, and every team didn't want me, and now I'm, like, graduated from college, and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And I'm driving back from Lake Havasu, and if you've ever driven from Vegas or Havasu, which I know you guys are good Christians, you don't go to Vegas, but if you ever knew people who, uh, <laughs> who drew, if you ever had a friend who ever drove back, like, there's like this windy rows are kind of up and down, and, and, and my roommate just kind of falls asleep on me. And for the first time in my life, like, I believed in God, but for the first time in my life, I knew this is God. This is God. B- because all of my life, I've been beginning justified by something else. Since the time I was five, literally, my uncle gave me a football and literally told me, this is your ticket to life, and I took it. This is my ticket to life. And then now, my God intervenes and says, I'm taking your reputation away. I'm going to take this football away, and I'm going to show you who you really are apart from me. And when you get to that moment where you realize, Lord, I am out. I can't win. It's the best place ever. Because in that moment is surrender. And when you know that when there's war with God, the best place is when you realize that God has sovereignly chosen to wrestle with you. As hard as it may be, and some of us, we come out crawling. Some of us come out wounded. Some of us, we figure it out beforehand, and we say, Lord, I'm out. But regardless, every single time when God wins, he's not just trying to win to dominate you. I don't think God was saying, I want to see you cry driving back from your draft party, which you didn't get drafted. No, God wrestles with us to win to show us that he loves us. And he loves us better than anything we're trying to find our identity in could love us. When he says, I've saved you from the penalty of sin, he says there was one thing that stood between us and God, and this one thing we were going to have to pay for, of which we couldn't, and God says, I will give you my son, and now there's reconciliation. The reason why I had you underline that peace with God is that means so much. That peace with God includes in it what Paul has been talking about, justification, which we've been made right with God, and that's a legal term. And sometimes legal terms can sound stuffy because it has a courtroom connotation. But what Paul is doing, he's saying, I'm going to take it from the courtroom and bring it into the living room. Because as chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 unfold, it unfolds from the courtroom into the living room because we go from sinners to being his children. That God welcomes us into his family. And so what Paul is saying is, therefore, even though you were a Romans 1 person or you were a Romans 2 person, now you are a Romans 5 person that now in Christ Jesus, the penalty of sin have been completely forgiven, completely paid for, and that you have peace with God. Amen? The first tense that Paul gives is the past tense. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. And Paul doesn't just stop there. There's this present tense, and this is probably where many of us, we really don't understand the gospel as much. And I don't say that in a way to say you're not smart enough. I'm just saying most of us have the hardest time understanding this present tense of God saving us from the power of sin. Here's how he says it in verse 2. Through him, speaking of Jesus, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, so going back to the, the, the marriage picture we have, right? And so let's say that the past tense was you've already put the ring on the finger, you've listened to Beyonce, you're good to go. And so you have, you, you have this relationship, and now you're in this in-between where the wedding is, is later, and you've already, had the, the, you've already asked her to marry you, and so you're in this moment. 
What I wish is that when I was getting married, that someone would have told me how terrible that moment is. Um, so some of you guys who are not married yet, um, once you get engaged, you're like excited. You're like, yeah, this is going to be great. And then you, you set out this like date somewhere in the future that you think looks good on a calendar and the weather is good. And you don't realize, especially if you're trying to honor God, that's a long time, right? And so now, now you have this date and you're looking forward and you're going like, why did we choose eight months? Do you realize we can't do our taxes together for eight months, right? Do, like, do, do you understand that? Like, why eight months? We should have done eight days, right? Like, that, I wish somebody would have said, like, you know, because what happens in that moment is just, just honestly, you have these high po- moments because you have thoughts and you dream about spending your, your whole life with this person, the same person that you love. And then there's low moments because you dream and you have thoughts of spending your whole life with that same person, right? And it's just like, you kind of go back and forth and they're asking for dates and they're asking for ad- addresses for your friends who you've never talked. It's just terrible, right? But you want to just get married. I'm not trying to paint a picture that it's like, it's just, it's just, for me, it was that way. How about that? Some people love the wedding planning part. Not me, right? So much of our Christian life is like that. That we look at the moment in which we were saved or the, the season in which God began to work in our life and maybe we think about the day in which God will come back, which we'll get to in a second. But in this moment here, we wish somebody would have told us, hey, there's going to be moments where it's just amazing. And there's going to be moments where it's not that amazing. And there's going to be moments again where you feel like, oh, yeah, it's going to be here forever. And there's going to be moments here. When you're here, and if this represents moments where you are not walking with God and you're in sin, you need to understand something. The gospel was not just something to get you into God's kingdom. And God says, now that you're here, just hold on until I come back. In the same way that you were saved, not by, not by works, but by grace, it's in the same grace that God gives us that he will grow us. Sometimes we don't understand as Christians what Paul is talking about here, this present tense, that God is still working in our life. What I, what I like to call it is oftentimes we're really good at being past tense Christians. Here's what I mean. We'll tell stories about a day in which God did in our life, about a day driving down a road, and we'll tell those stories, and they're beautiful, and we should tell those stories, but God did. But we don't have a whole lot of stories about what's happening now. And mainly because when we became Christians and we say we wrestle with God and we say we're out, God, we're out, do something in my life, and then all of a sudden we become Christians, and now we protect ourselves from saying we're out. Meaning what we do is we hide our sins, we hide our baggage, we hide our fears, we hide our faults in such a way that what we present looks really good. But if you walked into the house, what you would see is there's nothing in the house. There's just someone back there holding it up. It looks really good. And there's many Christians who are saying, my life is really good, when really it's not. If you would just admit it, it'd probably get really good. Because you'd begin trusting in God again. What got you saved in the beginning was not you being able to do good, but trusting in God's goodness and God's grace. What's going to grow you is not you being good, but trusting in God's goodness and God's grace. And what Paul is saying is, this is readily available for every single person who believes in Jesus. Read with me again in the first part of verse 2. It says, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Now, that word access there, um, it was a word that was used to a third party coming in and introducing someone of um, no importance, basically, um, to someone who is really, really famous. 
And so I don't know if you ever had those moments where you have a friend who knows a friend and knows you, and somehow they can connect you guys, right? Um, best thing that happened to me when I was in high school was that I had a friend of mine whose sister was, um, was an actress, and, and she came to us, and this is when, when Eminem had just came out and started rapping. If you don't know who Eminem is, he's... He's a rapper. And, um, and she was like, hey, um, I know this guy. And she told his name. We're like, we know who that is. She goes, would you like to meet him and be in a music video? I'm like, yes, right? Are you kidding me? And no joke. So our, our spring break, our, our junior year in high school, we get a chance to, um, because this girl knew him and knew us, we got a chance to be in a music video and meet him. And so we're walking in like, oh, wow, we're going to get a chance to meet Eminem, which, by the way, very disappointing. But then, like, finally, like, like extremely, it was like, ah. Oh. Yeah, that was worthless. But we got to be in the video, and it was like a really cool deal. We had access because of who this girl was. Had nothing to do with us. If it was just Josh and Ricardo, we would have been, no, we'd have been like lame kids. However, that year, we were the coolest kids at school because the video was on TRL. We're like, yeah, that's us. <laughs> what we fail to realize is there's a third party that we don't really, even as Christians, we talk about, but we don't really know them as we ought. We talk about God the Father, and we'll even talk about God the Son. But when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, some of us check out. Um, we, we don't really understand his ministry in our life. Sometimes we talk about him as if it's an it somewhere and it's a force, it's a power, when he is the third person of the Trinity. When Paul says there's access, there's someone who really knows God, the Father, who knows what God's plans are, and who's very acquainted to us, and the Holy Spirit brings us together. Just a short understanding of the Spirit. We wouldn't believe in God if the Spirit wouldn't regenerate our hearts, as it says in Titus 3. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ and applies it to our life. The Holy Spirit, in our weakest moments, it says, cries out for us, Abba, Father, to let us know that we are children. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the gospel lets us know that enables us and equips us to fight the power of sin currently. Because there's not a person in this room that's in Christ or desires to be in Christ, that wonders if I'm ever going to grow in this area. Like, don't we all have areas where we're going, man, if you took this sin away, God, it would be amazing. Then he, he took that sin away, you'd be like, oh yeah. If you took this sin away too. <laughs> There's just certain areas in our life where you feel like, Lord, am I going to wrestle with this? Like, there were, there were things in my life, like I said, I, like, the drug thing was something I used to get into. God saved me, and for me, and I know for some of you, it's not as easy, and I get that. Um, that's one that he took away from me, and God just worked through that. But then there's other things like anger. Where I feel like, for the most part, everything is good, and then my anger will go, like, you know, I'll turn into somebody else. I don't want to blame it on anybody else, but it's my kid's fault. <laughs> the, 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 the other night, um, there, there was just a moment where the boys were, I just kept telling them, hey, don't do that, don't do that. You know, I got to discipline them. But then, but then I was like, like, you know, I, I yelled. I was like, guys, you know, I'm looking, what are you doing, right? And then, like, the, you know, they're little kids, and, like, they looked at me kind of like, holy crap, dad, what are you doing? Are you, dad, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I had to get down and confess to them. I had to, I had to confess, guys, I'm sorry. Like, I should never treat you. I should discipline you. I'm your dad, but I shouldn't treat you that way. And we have moments like that. There's moments with you and your wife when you argue. You, you start bringing up stuff in the past that you wish you wouldn't. Your, your roommates, it's, it comes out of you. Whatever your issue is, and you ask, Lord, Am I ever going to get through this? Or we talk about this pretty regularly. It's when um, the sins that you committed before you were a Christian 
you, you still do now that you're a Christian. Before you were a Christian, it was like, you get it because you didn't know God. But now that you know God, you're like, yeah, it's even harder now that I know God. And what Paul is saying is, when you have access into this grace in which you stand, when he says this grace in which you stand, he speaks of grace as being a place. And the grace in itself is that grace by its very word, it means it's a gift from God. The gift from God is God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When it comes to ongoing um, indwelling sin in your life, in my life, guys, we cannot figure it out on our own. We can have as many accountability buddies. We can have all the internet software we can have. If we don't have the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. If we are not trusting daily in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, trusting in God's Word, it's meaningless. What we have best is, is behavior modification. And let me just tell you something. God's not content with you just cleaning yourself up. God's not content with you just saying, I'm not going to do that anymore, even if you don't do it. Because here's the truth. Here's the reality. You can stop what you're doing, whatever it is. You can stop what you're doing apart from the Spirit. You can, you can be a good parent. You can be a good spouse. You can be a good friend. You can be a good neighbor. You can kick whatever addictions you have. You can do all of that and not even, ha- not even trust in Jesus at all. We see that with people around us all the time. God's just not into you just being moral. He's not saying, I just want you to be moral. But God is not just saying, what I want in your life is just for you to be good. What God wants is for us to understand his love. And it's the love of God. It's only the love of God that will be able to transform us. And the way that we have this love of God is only and always by the work of the Spirit. This is the grace that we have, that we have access to God. And it'd be wise for us as Christians maybe to jump forward to Romans chapter 8 and begin to look at the role of the Spirit and the Spirit in our life because what, we would, what we're missing out on, again, because we're past tense Christians, many of us, myself included, is that we're missing that God himself right now through the gospel is working through us. We are being saved. And you see that in elsewhere in Scripture where we are being saved, meaning the work of salvation, the work of the gospel is at work in God's people now. Amen? This is something that we have to trust. Some of us, we trust in ourselves way too much. We trusted in Jesus at salvation, but now we're trusting in books. We're trusting in sermons. We're trusting in people. All good things. We're not trusting the one and the only one who gives life. We, we, we have a good theology of the cross, but not of the resurrection. Meaning we understand what Jesus did on the cross, but we don't understand that the resurrection is we needed the resurrection. Guys, if we had a cross and that was it, um, our faith and no resurrection, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, our faith is futile. It's meaningless. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, he says. There are plenty of people who went on the cross in the Roman culture and died. There's only one who was raised from the, from the dead. And what Paul tells us in Romans 8 is the same, the greatest event, the greatest event ever is that God was raised from the dead, which validates the cross. And what Paul says in Romans 8 is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's in every Christian, no matter what level of maturity that the same power that created and did the most incredible act in human history is in you and in me. And so though sometimes we feel that sin has us, the Bible is very clear. Sin never has you. God always has you.
God always has you. Oh, to be loved by God. Oh, to be in his presence. Paul is saying here, not only is it past tense what the gospel does, and it's saving you from the penalty of sin, but you are being saved from the power of sin. And that is day by day. We said this last week. Day by day, trusting in God's word, trusting in Jesus, is walking in the spirit, being filled with the work of God. Amen? Paul says we stand in this grace. This is ours. We're never going to be plucked away. I love that song that Blakeman sang earlier. He doesn't lose his sheep. He is always with his sheep. It's on his sheep for us to access, to know our access, and to walk in the filling and the anointment of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul shows us this past tense, this present tense on what God is doing, and then there's the future tense. So back to the marriage. Once you know that the date is getting closer to your wedding, and especially now, because there's so much planning that goes into weddings, it's kind of ridiculous, right? You guys realize that, right? Um, in fact, what I do now with most of my premarital is tell people, don't plan so much on your wedding. Plan more on your marriage, right? Hopefully that lasts a lot longer, and it's cheaper, right? So there's a, there's a sense where people put everything in the wedding, and, and you can tell when people are about to get, get married, especially around here, because we have a lot of young people is like, everyone's been going to the tanning booth, and it's like, oh, getting married, huh? Right? It's like, oh, working out, like guys working out, girls running and stuff. I just ran 18 miles. Why? I'm getting married, right? And there's like this planning because you're looking forward to that day, and that day is special. You show up, and you got your, your suit on, and your wife comes down the aisle, and she's looking all beautiful, and you're like, yeah, right? And their dad walks in, and you have to go, hey, get your hands off my wife. And he, you know, it's like, it's a special day. It is. I don't want to take away from that. It's a special day. Well, what Paul says here at the latter part of verse 2 is like there's a response like that for us now when it comes to our faith in God. Not only did God do a work in the past tense where the penalty is completely removed, but he's working in us now. But here's what he says in the latter part of verse 2. He says this, And we rejoice, which is not a command, it's an implication from understanding the work of the Spirit. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, meaning since we've been saved from the penalty and the Spirit is at work in our life, um, working us, growing us, making us more and more like Jesus, trusting in his grace, when we continue to do that, it says, and we rejoice. And again, that's not an imperative. He's saying this is what happens. This is a really celebratory moment that when you spend time with Jesus, that when you fall in love with Jesus, you rejoice in the same way that for, for me and, and um, our, our, my wife and I, before we were married, there were moments where we couldn't wait. You know, you just can't wait to be with each other. Like, there were, like, days where we would be at each other. I would be at her house, and it would be getting really, really late, like, probably later than it should have been. And, then, and I was leaving, and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to the day in which... I can live with you and be with you, and not just to do taxes together, to legitimately be with one another, that you want to be with that person. The more you walk with Jesus and the longer you walk with Jesus, there should be an affection that you have to see him, to know him, to thank him, to walk with him. And, in this, and I find this with, with talking to kids, whether it's our kids here or my own children, when we talk about Jesus, like, they want to see Jesus. Like, where is he at? Is he, you know, it's like, is he in my heart? Oh, get him out. Like, I mean, like, you ever had that to kids? Like, I want to I see him. That's like the weirdest thing. Where does Jesus live in your heart? Oh. There he is, right? It's like, like but they, they want a real Jesus. Don't you want Jesus to see him? Paul says, we rejoice in the hope. And the, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not how we use the word hope. Usually, we use the word hope meaning to be like wish, like 
hey, I wish this happens. I hope this happens for you. But there's no certainty in it. There's no guaranteed. However, when the Bible uses the word hope, there's certainty. Because God himself always proves himself and reveals himself within human history, acts within human history. Since we knew that we've been saved from the penalty of sin and that the Spirit is at work in our life, there is certainty to know that one day our God will come and he will fully restore all things. When it says the hope of the glory of God, the word there is called glorification, and that is when we will be with Jesus and we won't even have the opportunity to sin. Gosh, we should long for that. Like our, our, that means we have glorified bodies, meaning our bodies don't hurt, they don't ache, our bodies don't weep. Jesus says, I wipe every tear away from your eyes. Just, just the sense of just seeing him and knowing him, and not just so much so often when we talk about heaven, we want to know what we're doing there and who we're going to be with, and we talk about important things, and we should, but the one thing we know for sure in heaven is we will see Jesus. And I don't know about you, but there is a longing in me. There is, there is something built in all of us to know eternity. And in the believer in Christ Jesus, there's a moment not just to get into heaven and go, hey, thanks for getting me in, but to look at him, to see him, and to know him. Because right now, we just have a little bit. We have had a little encounters with God. And you who are Christian, you know even those little encounters were enough to go, Lord, we love you. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so in the same way, I think as a congregation, we can get better at knowing the work of the Holy Spirit. I think every single one of us as Christians, we can get better at looking to the future and when she would come. Because that actually guides you. In the same way I give a silly picture of people working out and getting ready, it's because they believe something's going to happen. They're going to get married. Maybe it's just that we don't really believe what we say we believe. And so there's not a cultivation for the longing of Jesus even though he gives us just enough. There, there's a woman who I read quite a bit um, who's gone through tremendous suffering, and many of you probably know her. Her name is Joni Eckersentata, and she, she just writes the most profound things talking about the next life and what that does for us here. And, and, and she has this quote in one of her books here where she says, the best way we can hope for in this life, the best we can hope for in this life is, an, is a knothole peek at the shining realities ahead. Yet, a glimpse is enough. It is enough to con- convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. And I love that. Just a glimpse. And I'm going to close with this. There's a story in the Gospels that I've always loved, just given us a picture to imagine of what it would be like if our, our lives truly encountered that glimpse. That with our little faith that we just completely encountered God, what that would look like for us. And the story in the Gospels of the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and some of you know the story, and she hears about Jesus. And she hears about who he is. She knows that she's, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And she is, is a crowd, and she's trying to get her way through the crowd. And if you know anything about the culture, if you were a person who was bleeding, you were unclean. And so you weren't even around be with people. You weren't supposed to be with people. And you were supposed to be out somewhere else. And she goes, I don't even care. And she's trying to get through the cloud and her crowd, and her whole mind is saying, if I can just touch the fringe of his garments, man, my life would change significantly. And it says she does. She has this encounter with God, and she's healed, and he looks at her, and he goes, you're saved, and, and, and he just does this work in life. That's just a glimpse. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you truly encountered the risen Lord? That if you truly believed and remind yourself that the penalty of sin 
is done, God's never angry with you, that he always looks at you with eyes of love, that even in your moments and your battle against sin that we all have, that we all hate, that you would understand that the present power of the Spirit is poured into your life and working, maybe then we can have a cultivation and desire for God's kingdom to come and fully, fully restore us and the places around us. Amen? Let's pray.